This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to today's program. If you're like me, you grew up with a very surface-level understanding of the events of the Holocaust. You probably learned about it as just one of several components of the Second World War during the course of a history class, or maybe you read the diary of Anne Frank in high school or viewed a movie based on the events of that horrific time. All of these are great things, but I'll tell you, nothing makes the Holocaust more personal. Nothing causes the lessons of that tragedy to be driven home so forcefully is when you speak with a person who was there, a person who actually survived it. Well, today's guest is someone who did survive it. In fact, he survived an astounding four concentration camps, including Auschwitz, as well as the seven-week death march and the notorious ill-fated death train from Buchenwald to Dachau. In fact, he is the only person who remains who survived the death train to Dachau and lived to tell the tale. My guest is the remarkable Mr. Ben Lesser. Ben, it's an always an honor to speak with you, and I want to welcome you to Gesher. Thank you, Tar. Well, Ben, I've heard your story a number of times. Uh, I've read your book, uh, seen the uh, documentary, the show that was done with Ann Curry several years ago. But I want to, to just walk us, I would like for you to walk us through your story. Uh, I want to begin, how old were you when the war broke out? And can you tell us about your first experience with Nazi brutality? Yes, of course. I was barely, well, I was 10 and three quarters, not quite 11, when the war broke out. And um, we lived in a beautiful city in Krakow, um, in a nice building. I don't know if you had a picture of that um, apartment house a six-unit apartment house on a major thoroughfare. And one early in the morning, the whole building started to shake and rattle. So I ran to the window to see what's going on. And I saw tanks were rolling down the street. And following the tanks, there were half tracks. And every few steps, a soldier would jump out of the half track, get on the sidewalk, and this is how they occupied the city of Krakow. Mm. There was no fighting. Um, following them were the Wehr, Wehrmacht with their, you know, um, their shiny black boots and their goose steps. It was quite impressionable for an 11 year old kid. Sure. So it was, we didn't know what to expect at the time. If my parents knew something, they didn't tell us kids. But right as they passed the street, my father called us kids into the living room, dining room actually, made us sit down on our chairs and told us, all right, kids, from now on, there are no more kids, no more children. You're all adults. You will obey. You will listen to exactly what you're told. I don't want to hear any whining or whatever. And this is how it began. On the fifth day after occupation of Krakow, 
we found out what Nazi brutality was all about. It was early in the morning at 5 a.m. A truck with soldiers pulls up to the gate of our building and they started to bang. Well, the super came running out asking, well, what's going on? All they wanted to know is where the Jewish people live. Mm. And he was quick to oblige. He said, okay, pointing to our apartment, the lessers live here. And there was another couple who lived across the way. They had, um, they had two daughters, a little younger than I, and the mother gave birth to an infant little boy about two months earlier. So they came running into us and to their apartment, breaking down the door, pistol whipping us. In their hands, they had open sex and they were screaming, throw in all your valuables, money, gold, jewelry, anything they can find. While they're beating up my father to open up the safe, we hear this terrible screaming from our neighbor's apartment. My sister Lola and I ran out to our kitchen door and through their kitchen door we came in and this is what we saw. We saw this monster was holding the infant little boy by its legs and swinging it and screaming to the parents, make him shut up. The parents and the daughters were yelling, our baby, our baby, don't hurt our baby. With the smirk on his face, you can see he was enjoying what he was doing. He smashes the baby's head into the doorpost, killing it instantly. My goodness. It's a memory that just won't leave me. Hearing that screaming baby and then that sudden silence and what came out of his head, my God, I have sleepless nights over it, but we all jumped on this monster and all the other soldiers came running in. They heard something is going on and they pulled us off him, pistol whipped us, and they saw what was going on. They were a little shocked themselves. Mm. Maybe they have never seen anything like that. And they said, okay, Hans, let's go. They got gathered up all the goodies that they took from us, threw it into a, into a, a um, sack and threw it into the, the and into the truck and they took off. Mm. That was the fifth day after occupation. And from that day on, <clears throat> things only got worse. You can't imagine the new ordinances started to come in so fast and furious. Jewish people had to wear a Star of David from the age of six years old of age. Um, they, there was a curfew. You couldn't be outside um, after seven in the evening and before seven in the morning. You had a curfew. Um, you couldn't travel. You have to have new IDs. 
one thing after another and um, a new ordinance came in that Jewish people are no longer allowed to live in the city of Krakow. Mm. Now, they gave us a choice the first time in history, in the first and last time in history. They gave us a choice. If you want to stay in Krakow, you have to go into the ghetto. They made a ghetto. And I hope you know what the ghetto is. I do. I, I've been there. In it, yeah. Ghetto. Or the other choice is you can move to a small community outside of Krakow, but not in a big city. My father is preparing to go into the ghetto. Almost all the Jewish people went into the ghetto. Uh, where else are you going to go? You know, we don't know anyone there on these towns. And my father's family, numbering over 200, went into the ghetto. And as we were going in, Michael, a young man, approached us. And he says, Mr. Lesser, you know how I feel about Lola. Someday I'd love to marry her. That's my, my sister. She was only 15 years old. Um, please do me a favor. Come to the same communities that my family and I are moving to. It's called Nepalomitsa. Nepalomitsa. Uh, my father gave him a choice to go into the ghetto or to Nepalomitsa. He chose Nepalomitsa. All the people from the ghetto, a few months later, were taken to Belzec extermination camp. Mm. Everyone was killed, everyone. So that was miracle one. Because Michael came over and asked, he fell in love with my sister. Right. That was a miracle that we, he came in just in time, and we went to that town. Now, in that community, uh, there's a whole story about it, how, how uh, we are on our way, and I don't know if, uh, how much time I have, so I don't know if I, how much details I can go into, but... We found out that my father had the thousand American dollars saved up for a rainy day. Mm. I didn't tell you, my father's business was a wine and syrup factory. Okay. And he also, also had a chocolate factory. He was the first person to manufacture chocolate covered wafers in Poland, like oh. Kit Kat, something like Kit Kat. Only if they were in the shape of animals like rabbits, bears, and tinfoil on it. Anyway, every time my father would come home, us kids would search his pockets. <laughs> he always made sure he had some goodies there. <laughs> anyway, he, we found out he saved a thousand American dollars for a rainy day. His businesses were confiscated. Sure. Of course, everything was taken away. 
So he took the money and he pasted it in a religious prayer book between the pages, American dollars pasted in there, and they put it in a sack full of books with other religious books. And we're loading it on the wagon. Michael, my future brother-in-law, arranged for it. Uh, wagon with a horse and buggy and a driver, okay? Mm -hmm. And we're leaving. As we leave Krakow, and we're outside of the city, about a few kilometers, we're being stopped. Halt! Two husky Nazis jump on the wagon. All they wanted to know, do we have any Jewish literature books? And they saw two sacks full of books. They picked them up and heaved it on the side of the road where they were going to have a bonfire after all the Jewish people passed. Mm. You see, the Jewish people had a chance to go into the ghetto or into the outskirts, and they had to cross this road. So they were waiting there and confiscating all the books they were going to have a bonfire after everybody passed. So my sister Lola spoke a beautiful German, and she walks up to him. She says, look, my father is a writer. He wrote his autobiography. Let him keep this one book. He looks at her. Maybe I like the way she spoke German. He says, okay. I'll give you five minutes if you can find it. All of us started to climb on those books. Well, they all look alike. They're brown or black leather bound and it's slight. Mm -hmm. They chased us away after five minutes, penniless. My father doesn't have a penny to his name. And it's not like he can get a job. Right to support the family, the Jewish people are not allowed to be hired. <clears throat> so he's going to a new community penniless. Anyway, he came to this um, farmhouse that my future brother-in-law, Michael, rented for us. And, you know, with the sash roof, it was a real farmhouse. Mm -hmm. And we move in there between the two apartments, one part of the house was the farmer, who was an apple orchard farmer, and the other part was ours. And between the two apartments, there was a baking oven, a big baking oven. People used to bake their own breads in those days. So, My future brother-in-law, Michael, found out what happened to my father's money. He brought my father a sack full of flour, a hundred pounds of flour, figuring he'll be able to bake bread to feed the family. Okay. When my father saw the flour, his face lit up. He took the flour and he started to bake pretzels huh. instead of why pretzels? All you need for pretzels is flour, water, and salt. Those ingredients he had. Mm. Then he took those pretzels to the neighboring bars and offered it for sale. 
and it was a big novelty. So I started to buy the pretzels. And this is how my father was able to feed the family. And somehow or another, he became a baker in that community. Wow. I don't know how he knew. And I was about 12 and a half years old. I remember baking with him. To this day, I still bake certain things that a memory that I remember because it brings back memories being with my father baking, you know? Yeah. And I think I've had the privilege of having some of your uh, Mandelbread. Mandelbread. Okay. Yes. So anyway, um, this is what happened. He became a little baker and we were there over a year and Lola marries Michael. Now, after the wedding, they moved to a duplex. One side of the duplex lived the owner of the duplex, who happened to be the mayor of that community. And one day he comes home, he says, Michael, save yourselves. I heard the rumor there's going to be a raid against the Jewish people either tonight or tomorrow night. When Michael heard that, he went out and he hired a wagon with a driver, horse and buggy. In the middle of the night, we snuck out from our apartments with whatever we could carry. The only place we can go was a city called Bochnia. It was the nearest city. Bochnia had a ghetto. That meant we had to go inside a ghetto. Bochnia ghetto had a very bad reputation. What happened every so often, two or three dump trucks would come into the ghetto in the middle of the night, and they would go from house to house, pull out the kids from their beds, and throw them into these dump trucks. My goodness. You can imagine the parents screaming for their children, children screaming for their parents. They filled up two or three dump trucks, and they started to pull out of the ghetto. And obviously, the parents were running behind these trucks and screaming for their children. But these cultured people had machine guns at the end of each truck. Mm. So they mowed down the parents running behind these trucks. That resonated throughout Europe. Stay away from Bochnia ghetto. But we had no choice. And it's a good thing we did leave Nepalomitsa because the night after they had a raid, all the Jewish people were put in trucks, taken to the forest. Remember, given shovels, made ditches. And everyone was shot. Mm. We were talking thousands of people, thousands of people. How did we know that? After the war, only I and my sister Lola survived the war. So we went back to find out in Nepalomitsa what happened. And they were telling us the farmers, as they went to the forest to pick berries, and mushrooms to sell in the market in the morning. 
they saw these trucks pull in with Jewish people and every and they saw what was happening they said the ground was moving for days after oh my so we are now inside the ghetto in Bohnia. and the driver unloads us in the middle of the street we sit in the street with a few belongings that we have okay and we're sitting there all of a sudden a jewish policeman they call him a couple mm -hmm. comes over and he, says, he sees michael he's a school buddy from michael went to school with him and they embraced what he says michael what are you doing here michael tells him the story he says don't worry, Michael, I'll find you a place to, to live. He took Michael, Lola, and his family to an apartment. And he took my father, my mother, myself, my little brother, to another place to give you an idea what ghetto living was like. It was one room. It was a large, big room, but it had eight other people. Mm. So now we were 12. No beds. All they had was straw on the ground, blankets on top of the straw. Blankets were hanging between the families separating families everyone in the ghetto had to work if you didn't work you didn't get a ration you'd starve my job was i worked in a uniform factory i was sewing on buttons on uniforms it was easy work but it was 13 hours a day very little sleep and very little food. And you're 10 years old or so at this point. No, at this point, I was almost 13. Oh, you, okay. Almost 13 because I was in Yepolomitsa a couple of years. Okay. Now, now I'm almost 13. And, and then Bokhnia Ghetto, I was there a year. So after a year, this, Michael, this Farber, the Jewish policeman, goes over to Michael and says, Michael, save yourself. Mm -hmm. The rumors there's going to be a raid tonight. Ever since those trucks would come in the middle of the night and pull out the kids from their beds, every apartment and every house had a hiding place now. They call those hiding places bunkers. So that's when I found out that our bunker was a piece of furniture in that room where you hang your coats and jackets. You open the door, you slide the clothing apart, the back panel would slide apart, mm. and there was a hole in the wall, and the 12 of us could crawl into the other side of the hole 
the last person would then close up the the, the doors and and put the closing back in place, put the back panel back. And we stood there all night long, freezing. It was between two buildings. The ceilings were open and it was snowing. But lucky for us, the outsides were connected, so they couldn't see us. All night long, we heard shooting, dogs barking, screaming. We heard our neighbors being torn apart by these wild dogs. Mm. Towards morning, it got quiet. We dared to come out. So we came out and we came outside. We couldn't believe what the eyes are seeing. Dead people all over in the snow. There was a woman with an infant. You couldn't recognize them. They were torn apart by dogs. Oh. People going around in push carts and picking up these bodies and pieces of bodies, putting them in the push cart, then taking them to the ghetto square and piling them up as high as they could. And these cultured people would come with gasoline cans, mm. pour gasoline over the bodies, and started a human bonfire in Bochnia Ghetto Square. My goodness. What can I tell you? To begin with, I don't know if you recognize this. This was. Miracle number two said they didn't find us behind this commode. Right. All, all they had to do is move it a foot and they would have seen the hole. Mm. They had their dogs that the dogs didn't sniff us out. It was a miracle that we survived this. Yeah. Because if they found us, they would have torn us apart with dogs or killed us, shot us. Anyway, now I'm going to see my sister. I knew my sister was supposed to be hiding in a doghouse. You heard right, a doghouse. You lift the floor from the doghouse, there was a stepladder, and seven people could hide below there, and there was enough bedding and provisions for seven people. So my sister is telling the story. They were about to go into the doghouse and other Jewish policemen by the name of Morris Schiller walks up to them. He says, Michael Lola, I know about your hiding place in this doghouse. Unless you take my sister and my mother along to hide with you, I'm gonna tell the authorities. Mm. Well, what can they do? There's only room for seven. Right. Now now they were nine. So Michael and Lola decided to walk away. And as they're walking away, the others went down. This friendly policeman, Farber, 
meets Lola and Michael and he says, what are you doing walking the street? Why aren't you hiding someplace? So Michael tells him the story about Morris Schiller. He says, don't worry, where my sister and her two children are hiding, there is room for you, follow me. He takes them to a leather factory, a tannery. Above the tannery, there's a water tank. He says, my sister and her two children are inside that water tank. Get up on that step ladder. Inside there's a rope, you can lower yourself. And if when you hear in the morning a knock on my on the tank outside, I'll give you the signals that the coast is clear, you can come out. All right, Lola is telling the story. They're lowering themselves in and they see his sister is standing knee deep in water. Her little girl is waist high in water. Mm. And the mother is holding a little infant boy sound asleep. I guess it was euthanized or whatever, but sound asleep. Lola picks up the infant boy from the mother. Michael picks up the girl from the floor, the water. And all night long they hold mm. in this cold water and there are little rats swimming around and nibbling at their feet. And they hear the same thing we hear, heard, shots, firing, screaming, yelling, shooting, all this going on. Uh, towards morning, it got quiet and they hear the signal from Farber, the coast is clear, come out. Mm. So after they pulled themselves out and they got some circulation back into their legs, the first thing they wanted to know is go to the doghouse and find out what happened to the, his family. And they came to the doghouse. They see everybody's laying in the snow with a bullet hole in the head. My goodness. Every member of the family including the dog was shot. Lola screamed out and Michael stopped her. They may still be burning bodies, they'll hear you. So with a quelched cry, they knew what they had to do. See, according to the Jewish religion, you're supposed to bury your loved ones within 12 or 24 hours. Yes. So Michael went out and he found the riggedy wheelbarrow. He put his family on the wheelbarrow. We have pictures of this. My sister was an artist and she, she did all these pictures from her memory. I have seen those. They're, they're chilling. Yeah, chilling. In fact, Michael's little sister she was seven years old, is still holding on to her doll that Lola made her for her birthday. Mm. And they put them all on that rigged wheelbarrow. They take him to the cemetery. And anyway, they found a shovel and the hard frozen ground. They were able to pull out a 
I'll tell you a little more. I, I was going to skip this, but all of a sudden, while they're putting in the whole family into the grave, Schiller, Morris Schiller, walks up to them. He says, it wasn't my fault, and it wasn't his fault. His own mother and sister were killed, too. Mm -hmm. However, he says, that graves that you just dug and put your family in it, you're going to have to take him out because I want a grave for my mother and my sister. My goodness. Well, Lola started to scream and cry, and Michael says, well, he's got the power over us. Anyway, so they had to take everybody out, put them back on the wheelbarrow, find another spot by a gate there, by, by a fence, and they buried the family. While this is going on, a jeep was coming up the hill, and the jeep stops at the cemetery gate. Two assessments jump out, and they come into the cemetery yelling, Morris Schiller. And he says, yeah, whoa, here I am. He walks up to them. They pull out the revolver. They shot him. Mm. This is what they did with people who have seen too much. Yeah. They don't want to leave any witnesses. They killed him. So... Anyway, uh, this part is going to take too long. Me, my family, and Lola and Michael were able to get out of the ghetto, and we were able to take 55 people with us. Outside to the outside of the ghetto. It's a miracle. It's another miracle, but I don't have the time to get. It's too long of a story. Sure. Well, can can I ask stuff. Ben? Uh, yeah. When you've told your story uh, before, you often state that it's almost like you went through two holocausts. Can you explain that? Why yeah, Why would you say that? I'm getting to that. Oh, okay. I'm getting to that. Good question, but if I tell you to you now, it's going to spoil something. Oh, you go ahead then. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. All right. So, anyway, we're outside the ghetto, and Michael approaches a truck driver who was hauling coal. He says, we will pay you a lot of money. We can convert your truck into a double-decker coal on top, and between the coal and the chassis, people could hide. And if you take us to the Polish-Czech border, and we will have a smuggler waiting there, we'll pay you a lot. Will you do it? He agreed. He converted his truck into a double-decker, and it would hold 10 people, just like sardines, hmm. five, five. It was so crowded, you can't imagine. Anyway, the first group of people went out, and Michael and Lola and other eight people 
got in there, so the 10 of them, this wealthy family was paying the way for Michael and Lola. They were going to pay the way for the whole family, only two at a time on each truckload. So Michael and Lola went first. Why? Because you couldn't always trust these drivers. Uh. They would take your money, and then they would turn you into the Gestapo or, or SS, mm -hmm. and they get ransom money for Jewish people who tried to escape. So you couldn't trust them. So they made up a password. If the driver comes back with the right password, you can trust them. Otherwise, don't. The second they passed, the driver came back with the right password. The second group was another 10 people, eight of this family's members, and two from my family. My mother insisted that I go and my little brother. Okay, my mother and father were gonna go on the next transport. My oldest brother, Moishi Morris, was arrested and sent to concentration camp. Mm. He was involved in our escape from the ghetto. They caught him. So they put him in concentration camp. I had an older sister, Goldie, Goldie was in Munkarch, Hungary. Mm -hmm. My mother's side of the family come from Munkarch, which is now Hungary. And she got caught when the war broke out with her grandparents in Hungary. So she was in a free country. She was free. So this gives you an accounting for this family of seven. Yeah. We were a family of seven. Now it's my turn and my little brother to get into this truck. So I'm facing my little brother. We're on the side like sardines and we're laying there. One hour, an hour and a half and we're being stopped. Halt! And we see through the crack, we see soldier rifles and they're talking to the driver even though we spoke, I spoke German, I couldn't hear because the roar of the engine was so loud. And all of a sudden the truck started to move again. So we felt relief until we looked through a crack. We see on one step, there's a soldier with a rifle. On the other step is a soldier with a rifle. Now we hear soldiers walking on top of the coal. Mm. A lot of soldiers on top of the coal. Two and a half hours they're with us. Then the truck stops and we're figuring they're going to take us to a cemetery or a forest and shoot us. Right. And we're saying our prayers, right? Yeah. All of a sudden we hear, Danke schön, Danke schön. They were just hitchhiking. <laughs> Imagine, talk about miracles. These soldiers are on top of 10 Jewish people hiding underneath their feet. Little do they know. They had no idea. Two and a half hours they're with us. And we were like reborn again. We couldn't believe it. <laughs> they didn't know. 
This is ever just hitchhiking. And anyway, he took us to the forest. That was another one of the miracles, right? being with the soldiers and not being caught. Yes. It was believable. So now another miracle happened in the forest. We had, we had to cross the border from Czechoslovakia to Hungary. Uh, Hungary was a free country. This was in 1942. Three. It'd be another year yeah. before the Nazis would occupy yeah. Hungary. In 1943, it was in the summer of 1943, and um, we had to cross border. I remember it was uh, the, the smuggler took us to a spot, and he said, lay down on your stomach, lay here for a half hour, look up. It was pitch black. You couldn't see anything, but we saw some movement. There were the soldiers on the borderline with their dogs and, and walking back and forth. At 3 a.m., these soldiers would come down, and they had a little ceremony, and fresh soldiers would go up. Hmm. During those few minutes, there was time to cross the border. Is a good chance, okay? So the smuggler made us lay on our stomach, and then as these soldiers marched down, we started to shimmer our way up quietly. And he told us that on the other side of the border, there is a ravine, a steep ravine. And unless you hold your hand and sit down at the edge of the mountain and slide down, if you tumble, it's all over. They're going to hear you. So we, we went anyway. We he crossed. He picked up the barbed wire and we went across. We sat on the edge holding hands and we started to slide down a big ravine. And then we hit a plateau. I asked my little brother, are you okay? He says, yes. You couldn't see anything. Mm. And all of a sudden, somebody taps me on my shoulder. I jump out of my skin. <laughs> Who out in this wilderness? I don't see anybody. Somebody, he says, Bainish? No one in the family except my immediate family call me Bainish. Mm. He says, I'm your uncle Belo. Wow. Your, your mother's brother. How did you know? Where did you find him? He says, and Lola and Michael passed. They contacted us and he told us exactly where the spot is. I waited for you here. Wow. Anyway, of course, we were very happy and he he took us, but we still had to cross another border, the Czech Hungarian border, to go into Hungary because Hungary was a free country, not Czech. Czech Hawaii was uh, occupied by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. So, we had to cross that border. It wasn't so simple, but it's long of a story, so I'm going to skip it. Just that we did cross it, and we, we the, on the other side, we had a wagon waiting for us. 
and they took us to a first railroad station and we boarded the train to go to Budapest. In Budapest, we met our sister Lola and Michael. They were waiting for us, embraced, of course. Uh, there are other little things that I had to do, which is too involved. I had to uh, legalize myself, mm -hmm. as, the, and, and my uncle had to be my guardian. So he had to go into a jail, and he had to sign some papers. It's a whole story. But anyway, I was legalized now in Hungary, and we are leaving to go to Munkac. Munkac is where my grandparents and my oldest sister Goldie was still there waiting. And and my uncles, aunts, cousins, everybody's there waiting for us. We embraced, we we're so happy. Anyway, I'm in Munkac for about five months in freedom. Mm. And and we're waiting for my parents to come because in the next truckload. It was supposed to be my mother and father coming. They never came. Hmm. One day we see somebody who came across the border who know, knew them, knew the story. He was telling them, telling us what happened. As they were about to go into the truck, and most of them were already inside the truck, a Polish farmer saw what was going on. And since they get paid ransom, they called the police, the Gestapo. They came out, pulled everybody out, all 10 people, including the driver. Now they were 11, and all the 11 were lined up against the building and shot. Mm. So. That's a story by itself, a lot, a lot about it. But anyway, my parents are dead. So now, um, they, what happened is they had a Jewish policeman who, who was ordered to bury my, the 11 people. And the mass grave, they buried them. And it just so happens that Jewish policemen survived the war. And he was able to tell us exactly the spot. So we were able to, to build a monument, monument for everybody. Wow. Anyway, that's another story by itself. But here, in March of 1944, the Nazis just march into Hungary like they were invited guests. Mm -hmm. They came in and they knew every Jewish person, their name, their address, their ages, their education, their businesses, everything. How come? They didn't have computers in those days. Right. IBM had punch cards. Mm. And they were selling these punch cards to anyone who paid the price. So IBM doesn't deny it. Mm -hmm. They say they didn't know that they sold them these punch cards. 
anyway, this in in what happened, whatever happened in Poland took a couple of years to get the people into ghettos and everything. Here it took two months. Mm. Everything was so organized. They came came in. This is what they told us. You will all be relocated to Germany. Germany needs workers. Able-bodied men and women will be working. Children will be schooled. Older people will be cared for. Bring along all of your valuables that you can carry with you, but leave everything else behind. Anyone found hiding will be shot. Well, people believed it, and they started to pack up and started to march out to the cattle cars. They lined us up, 82 cattle car. While we're waiting to get in the cattle car, two men with a stretcher are walking over, and they set down the stretcher right by my feet. I see a woman that I don't... And she looks familiar, but she's all black and blue and bloodied. I take a good look. It's my sister Goldie. Oh, my. My beautiful sister Goldie. That face you couldn't recognize anymore. I says, Goldie, oh. what happened to you? She says she tried to escape. So she went as far as the railroad station. A Hungarian gendarme who went to school with her, recognized her, he turned her into the SS. Oh, they beat her, beat her to a pulp. And now they ordered us to go into these cattle cars. This is where Holocaust number two begins. Mm -hmm. You wanted to know where was Holocaust one. Right. Holocaust one was the Polish Holocaust. Holocaust two, then I was in freedom for a few months. Then Holocaust two, the Hungarian Holocaust. And I was in it. And they put us, so that's why there were two Holocausts that I said. Yes. I survived, Thank okay. You. So now I'm in this cattle car. 80 people to cattle car. What can I tell you? You can't picture this. Old people, infants, pregnant women, uh, sick people screaming, yelling, no water. water. We had two buckets of water. That was gone the first day. Yeah. We were on day three already. There were no sanitary facilities, no toilets. So imagine people started to use those two buckets. Sure. Now the buckets were filling over and they were spilling all over the floor. Now we were happy we had bundles. We can sit on the bundles instead of the, 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 the human waste. Right. I'm, oh, what? The third night we arrive at a place, we see a sign over railroad station. 
It says Oshvinchim. Oshvinchim is Auschwitz for Auschwitz. Yes. German. Polish Oshvinchim. The train didn't stop there. It continued and and it stopped. And we see a gate in front of our eyes. The gate says, Arbeit macht frei. Mm. Labor gives you freedom. That's the gate from Auschwitz. Yes. We didn't know about Auschwitz. We didn't know about it. But Arbeit macht frei makes sense. It's a labor camp. That made sense. So the train stopped there and stood there for a couple hours. Then it started to pull out for another three kilometers. And it went to Birkenau, Auschwitz-Birkenau. Birkenau was where all the killing was done. Most of the killing was done in Birkenau. Yeah. Auschwitz had one crematorium, one gas chamber. Birkenau had four of each. Um, anyway, we don't know one from another. They open the door and they scream, women and children to the right and men to the left. Now, I was 15 and a half. I could have gone with the children, mm -hmm. but that's when my little brother and my sister were holding on to me and they were pulled away. I've never seen them again. Oh they went to the gas chambers. Now, I could have gone with my little brother. I was 15 and a half. I was still considered a child or sure. not quite an adult. I decided to go with the adults. Why? I figured if you're, this is a labor camp, and if you labor, they're going to feed you better. Mm -hmm. That's only reason that was saved me that saved me that was a miracle yeah i another decided one. no reason at all another miracle now we stand in line and we see ahead of the line a doctor that was dr mangala the angel of death we didn't know that you see doctor and he had a white glove and he goes like this, right, left, right, left, right, left. We didn't know what that means. Right. But when I came close enough, I heard them ask a question of one young man. He says, comes to five kilometers laufen. Can you run five kilometers or would you rather go by truck? That guy said he had a bad knee. He would rather go by truck. Poor soul, not realizing that meant certain death. Yes. It's going to the right. I didn't know this either. But something didn't make sense to me. I see the barracks. Why would he ask, can you run five kilometers? We're here already. Mm -hmm. I figured he's testing us to see if we're strong enough to work. Sure. So I tell my uncle and my cousin, I says, whatever he asks you, tell him, yes, you're strong to work. You can run. 
Don't give any excuses. But let me go first. And I'll go first to him. I stretch myself out to be as tall as possible. And I said, I'm 18 years old, I'm healthy, and I can work. So he asked me, constant five kilometers laufen, can you run five kilometers? I said, jawohl. He sent me to the left. Mm. That's another miracle. Yeah. If I was 15 and a half, I would have gone to the gas chambers. I decided to tell him I'm 18, I'm healthy. Okay. Why did I tell him I could run? I could have said no, I'd rather go by truck. Yeah. Those are miracles. Yeah. And then they led us to a big auditorium. And we can see, I mean, we can see chimneys and flames shooting out. It was nighttime and ashes are falling all over the place. Every time you make a footstep in the ashes, just like in snow, mm -hmm. a funny smell. And the guys in front of me are saying, oh, those must be smelting factories. This is probably where we will be working. Mm -hmm. Little did we know. And we go into this big auditorium and they, ordered us to get undressed, get out of your shoes, go over to the line of barbers, they'll cut your hair, and then go into the showers. <laughs> well, I get undressed, but my shoes, I have diamonds, mm. right? My uncle gave me diamonds. That's the uncle that had diamonds in his shoe, but he got out of his shoe. And his son had also got diamonds. He got out of his shoe. But I decided, no, I, 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 I'll keep these shoes. So picture this. I walk over naked to the line of barbers. They cut my hair all over. They weren't exactly gentle either. Mm. And no one said a word about my shoes. The Gestapo, the police, uh, I mean, the soldiers were walking back and forth and looking at us. If they had seen my shoes on, beautiful black shoes, I disobeyed an order. They would have shot me on the spot. Right. That was another, another miracle. miracle. I went through with the shoes. I went through the showers with the shoes. And I put my shoes under my jackets that they gave us the, the striped jacket and uh and they i put on their shoes they gave us um uh, wooden soles with canvas on top and we marched out and i had my shoes under my arms and we marched to the barracks the stuben elteste the man in charge of the barrack was a Polish inmate, mm. but he was in charge of the barrack. So he comes out and he speaks to us in a broken German. He says, ha, you Hungarian Jews, you think you're here on vacation? 
think again. See, see those chimneys, those ashes, those flames. Those are your mothers, your fathers, your brothers, and your sisters. My goodness. And if you don't behave and do exactly what you're told, this is how you're going to wind up ashes. I couldn't believe this. This is the 20th century. Right. They're just burning my little brother and my sister ashes. And they pushed us into this barrack and they tell ordered us to take us a bunk. My cousin and I and his dad, my uncle, take upper upper bunk bunk. We lay down and we were so tired, we fell asleep. About an hour later, my cousin is waking me up. Ben, get up, get up, get up. What, what, what's happening? He says, listen, I hear a chanting or a screaming or a crying or a singing. I can't make it out. Mm -hmm. Then he says, look, one side of the barrack had some boards missing in the wall, and we can see an orange hue like flames. What is it? I said, I don't know. But I know what. The Stuben elders there spoke to us in a broken German, but I can detect he was Polish. I'm going to go ask him. So I go to him and I say in Polish, Przepraszam bardzo. He hears that. His ears perked up. He was so happy to hear somebody speak his language because everybody was Hungarian, right? Sure. I called the Hungarian crowd. Right. Excuse me. All right, so now he tells me more than I wanted to hear. Ha, you Hungarian Jews, he says, you know nothing. Six months before Hungary was ever occupied, we knew that it's going to be occupied mm. because they make it, made us dig ditches for the influx of the Hungarian Jews for fiery pits, oh. the influx of the Hungarian Jews. They knew the Hungarian Jews are going to come in so fast and furious. They wouldn't have time. They had to burn them fast. And he doesn't stop there. He was so happy to speak Polish. And this is what he tells me. It takes a half an hour to kill a person in the gas chambers. They didn't have a half hour to wait after 15 minutes when they saw everybody was laying on the ground if you're alive or dead it didn't matter they would open the gates they let it air out for about 10 or 15 minutes the Sonderkommando, mostly jewish people that was their job yes. had to come in pull their gold teeth 
cut the hair, put him on gurneys, five to a gurney with rope on him, and send it to the crematorium. But that was too slow of a process. Now they had trucks waiting, dump trucks. They would throw these bodies half alive into these dump trucks and fill up the dump trucks and, and dump them into these fiery pits. My goodness. I said, how, what, what about the screaming and yelling that I hear like all day and all night? Yeah. He said, Jetchy, they didn't have time for children. Children had no hair. Infants had no hair. They had no gold teeth. They had no use for them. They didn't want the infants to take up space into in the gas chambers. So they took some of the infants away from the mothers, and now they were throwing the live infants on top of these half-dead bodies on the truck. I cannot imagine. They were now throwing them into these fiery pits alive. That's what I you hear. Hmm. That's what you hear. Hmm. Well, what can I tell you? It was a, an awakening. And we were there for two weeks. In Auschwitz, we went through hell. We didn't work, but every day, we had to go out in the morning for appel, and they count us, okay? Mm -hmm. the evening, again, they count us, and they made us stand in appel for two, three hours. Just stand there. And if you dare to lean down, they shout you. You had to be absolutely still. And they had a game they played. They would yell, Mütze, Abnehmen, the hat, down. When you took out your head, you had to give a a knock on the side of your leg. Mm -hmm. they, they only wanted to hear one knock. If they heard one late, they wanted to know who it was, and they would kill you. Sometimes they'd just take anybody and kill you. An example, who who knew? Who knew? Right. It was a game, and every morning after they count us, we had little shirts like a rag. They made us take off the shirt, stand naked in, in tension, and they had these SS officers go up and down and they would look at you. If you're too skinny, they'll put you up, pull you out, send you to the gas chambers. Mm. They had a whole line. Every morning, people, they were taken to the gas chambers. They, they called that selection. They're selecting the, the, the weak ones. Two weeks of this, and then all of a sudden they us in trucks and they take us to a labor camp. This labor camp was called Dernhau. Dernhau was in a rock quarry. As they dynamited the mountain, 
and boulders would come down, it was our job with sledgehammers to break it down to manageable pieces, throw it into mining uh, car, you know, like mining cars yes. for tracks, tracks, and they run it down to grinding machines. They grind it into gravel, then push those mining carts back up again. It was back-breaking work. And if you dare to straighten out and rest, they whipped you. You can't imagine. So I figured my uncle will never survive this. That night, in the barrack where we slept, the chef from the kitchen, he was also an inmate, was there. I went to him and I bribed him with my diamonds and my shoes mm. to give my uncle a job in the kitchen. And he took the diamonds and he gave him a job in the kitchen. It got a little easier on us because my uncle could eat in the kitchen and then he got a ration. He was able to split his ration between his son and me. So it made it a little easier, a little easier. Now, every day when we came home from work, we would line up in rows of fives. All the help inside the camp had to come out and also line up with us, count it. And after we're counted, they dismiss us. And you go for your ration, you go to the barrack, okay? One day we come back, they count, count, and count. And they won't dismiss us. The commandant comes down with his Fräulein, his girlfriend. He says, I'm going to teach the Schweinhund a lesson they'll never forget. What happened? Three inmates escaped. And because of this, he orders his henchmen to pull out every 10th person in line to receive 25 lashes. My goodness. As they're pulling out every 10th person, I can see my uncle who is in front of me is going to be a 10. So I push him behind me and I took his place. Mm. I figured he'll never survive it. Yeah. I took his place. They took us number 10 in the middle of the yard and they brought down one by one hardwood stakes about two and a half feet long, you know, and they brought down a sawhorse. You know what a sawhorse is? I do, yes. All right. You know, the sawhorse has a two by four on top and two by four legs on each side. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like a tripod. Uh, and this is what they order us to do stand in front of the sawhorse, tiptoe, bend over but your stomach cannot touch the two by four on the sawhorse. Your heel cannot touch the ground. 
And then one man would pull your trousers real tight like a drum. And the other one starts to hit and you have to count out loud. If you miscount it, you start from one again. Oh my. If your stomach touches the two by four, you start from one again. If your heel touched the ground, you start from one again. It was almost impossible. I was number four. Number one goes up. Well, needless to say, he miscounted, he touches, and again, they start again and again. Finally, and every time they hit him, you see a line of blood coming through the trousers. Mm. Finally, he falls. He falls, the commandant goes over, kicks him in the face, get up. He couldn't. He pulls out the revolver and he shoots him right in the temple, killed him. His girlfriend walks over to him, gives him a hug and a kiss, like he just performed the heroic act. He killed a man. Good grief. Now number two went out, same way. He too, he felt miscounted, he touched, don't ask again and again, finally fell. The commandant kicks him in the face, get up, he couldn't, he shoots him. So we have two dead bodies. Number three, the same way. I mean, it's impossible. And after again and again, they started again, but the beating, he screams out, he was a younger man. He screams out, please have mercy on me. Do not kill me. So the commandant says to him, then stand up and come over here and face me. He stands up, walks over maybe five or six steps. His knee gave about him under him. He falls. The minute he falls, the commandant shoots him. So we have three dead bodies. Ben Lesser is next in line. You know what? Talk about miracles. I can't figure this out. All I remember is I went out to the sawhorse, tiptoed, bent over without touching the two by four. One man is pulling my trousers and the other one starts to hit. And I yell out, eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, sechs, sieben. And, and I'm still not touching anything. Mm. Acht, nine, finally, zwanzig, einundzwanzig, zweiundzwanzig, dreiundzwanzig, vierundzwanzig, fünfundzwanzig. I made it, 25. Mm. Don't ask me how. You can hear a pin drop in this camp because no one believes that anyone could survive this the man who was pulling my trousers tells me in yiddish he says go over and thank him mm. i stand up blood is running down the back of my feet i walk over to him salute and i say danke schön herr commandant Thank you very much, Herr Commandant. When he hears that, he puts his hand on my shirt collar and twists me around facing the number 10s who are still to be beaten. 
he says see i told you it could be done if you do it like this younger you have nothing to worry about mm. while this is going on there's a commotion at the gate they caught those three inmates uh. They were pulling the men bloodied. You couldn't recognize any of them. When the commandant saw that, just like a child gets sick of a toy and throws it away, yep. he tells all of number 10s to go back to our lines. And he orders his henchmen to bring down a portable gallow to hang those three inmates. Mm. I'll never forget this. We all had to watch. If you dare to close your eyes, you got whipped. So the third man, as they put the noose around his neck, he must have been religious. He yelled out, Shema Yisrael. It's a Hebrew prayer. Yes. Six, six words, only six words. When they heard it, they kicked the stool out from under him. They wouldn't let him complete the mm. last words, Adonai Echad, God is one. Right. They wouldn't let him complete it. It was like to say this. Wow. And then they dismissed us to go back in line like nothing ever happened, okay? Um, what can I tell you? For weeks, I could not lay on my back uh. of these welds i had to sleep and lay on my stomach only and after a while one night we hear cannon fire like the front was closing in that morning when we report to go to work there's a loudspeaker saying no one is going to work today the camp is being evacuated line up in rows of five and march out my uncle was already in the kitchen working he couldn't say goodbye to him his son my cousin and i holding each other we march out this was called the death march hmm. they called it the death march because if you could not keep up pace they simply shot you. Keep up pace with the soldiers. They simply shot you. And all day long you hear pop, 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 constantly being people shot. Now I thought that I went to this, they called that the death march for three or four weeks. I was corrected by a German professor who read my book hmm. that Mr. Lesser made him two errors in his book one of them is he said he marched for three or four he says the death march was seven weeks oh my 469 kilometers from Dernhau to Buchenwald and he knows yeah he wow. says it took seven weeks now talk about miracles I don't know how we survived this we didn't, we were like zombies. We didn't know day and night. And we had to keep up pace with the soldiers. The last week, our shoes fell apart. So now we were marching barefooted on the snow. 
and we had to keep up with the soldiers in their beautiful boots. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's a miracle we arrived at the Buchenwald. In Buchenwald, they lined us up, counted us, and they told us to go into this barrack. How much time do I have? Is it all right? I'm almost finished. Sure, sure. And and just to make note, this is now your third camp. Really? For those who are listening. So this is camp number three that Ben has entered at this point. There are people, there are people listening? Uh, they will be, yes. They'll be, okay. It's not live. So now... Where was I? Okay. We went into the barracks, sure enough. They fed us and we took a shower. They gave us fresh clothes. Next morning at 8 a.m., we had to be in the same spot because Buchenwald is also being evacuated. Mm. So they march us out about 300 yards from the camp. We see a line of cattle cars. And they count us 82 cattle cars and they tell us to march in. I tell my cousin, I helped him get up. I said, find a spot where we can, we can rest our back against the wall. Going to Auschwitz and people all around you, it was terrible. Mm. So I asked him to find a spot, and he did. He found a spot against the wall, and he saved one spot for me. So. 80 people got in, they closed the gate, an hour later they opened them up and they threw in 80 breads, a loaf of bread for each person. Picture this. Yeah. Those people who were next to the door were grabbing three or four breads. Sure. And I was against the wall, we had nothing. We don't know where we're going, for how long, but we have to. We have to have something. We were starved already, and we had to eat something. I decided to climb over the inmates to go to the door to see if I can wrestle out the bread from somebody who has several of them. And as I'm climbing over the inmates, one inmate had a pocket knife, and he stabs me. And I feel a stab right here, and I feel blood in my mouth, but I have to get the bread, right? I keep going and going, and this man had a bunch of breads. I took one, one from him. He even hit me. I took one from him and put it in my back pocket. I went back to my cousin. He says, Ben, what's happening? You're bleeding. I put my finger here. It went right through my tongue. Mm. I have a big gash. To this day, you can st still see a mark. Yes. But now the mark is over my chin bone because I filled up. I was skinny. It was in the middle of my throat. Yeah. Anyway, it's a miracle, another miracle, how I could have survived this. That we didn't get sick. Right. And I had one bread, and I rationed this bread between my cousin and myself in the middle of the night, the size of a half an egg for him, a half an egg for me. 
no one could see us because if they see us, they'd kill us for the bread. Everybody around us is dying. People are dying all over the cattle car. One week, two weeks, my bread is gone. No more left. The train was shuttled back and forth for another week. No water, no food. And out of the 80 people inside this cattle car, only four of us walked out barely alive. Mm -hmm. And my, my cousin and I were two. You were two of those. My. Everybody was dead. Now, in my book, I say that there were about 3,000 people in that dead train. This professor corrected me. He says, Mr. Lesser, there were almost 7,000 people in that train. Wow. And only 18 walked out in Dachau alive. 18. 18 out of 7,000. And today you are the only survivor. Oh. I'm the only survivor left out of that, that train. Mm. And what happened in Dachau, I mean, they ordered us to go through the tracks on the other side of the gate, get in, and we came in. We see a mountain full of dead bodies. We found out later they ran out of coal in the crematorium, so they piled up these dead bodies mm. as high as you can see. And they put me and my cousin in a barrack right next to those dead bodies, just on the ground. They didn't give us a bunk or anything. No food, no water. The inmates felt sorry for us. They brought, brought us some water, you know. Anyway, one day, two day, day three, be here, Bafraim, liberation, Americans, Americans. <laughs> Bafraim, I tell my cousin, come on, let's go out and see. So I'm holding each other, coming out. We see the inmates are crawling on their hands and knees, kissing the boots of the GIs. Mm. They look like, like angels, yeah. gods to us. My God. They liberated us. And I'm standing there with my cousin. Two soldiers, two GIs walk up. In their hand, they had a can of Spam. Mm -hmm. They open up the can of Spam. And they offered it, gave it to us. We made a mistake. We ate some of it. <laughs> it smelled so good and we made a mistake. And both of us came down with desenteria. Boy. My cousin dies in my arm, oh. the night of liberation. Night of liberation. Mm. And I talked to him, and somebody saw that, so they came to take him away. As they're pulling him away, I follow. I want to know where you're taking him. About a few steps, and my knees gave up from under me. And I fall, 
they pushed me against the wall and I lay there for about two hours. A man walks up to me nicely dressed in a suit and he asked me in a broken German what languages I speak. So I gave him my languages and he heard Polish. I'm Polish, I'm from Poland, I'm a Jesuit priest. Mm. I came here with nuns and doctors from Paris and we we're opening up a field hospital in the yard of Dachau. I'm gonna take you there. Mm. Well, he picks me up like a sack of bones, which I, I weighed maybe about 30 pounds. That was at age of 16. I was 16 pounds. years old, 16 years old. Puts me on his shoulder. He carries me to the infirmary. On the way, he told me something I'll never forget. He, he pointed out what the terrible uh, crime the Nazis have committed against the Jewish people and, and for what? Uh, he says, the only crime the Jewish people committed is they were born to Jewish parents. Mm -hmm. But that, it was, he says, however, don't you ever abandon your noble religion. Mm. Now, to hear that from a Jesuit priest That's in 1945 something. was very unusual. Yes. I never forgot it. And he took me inside there a tent. There was a nun waiting for me. They put me on a cot with a white sheet. She took my vitals, and I passed out. Two and a half months later, I wake up in Santertillion, a monastery in Bavaria. The monks gave out one building to rehabilitate the survivors. So it became like a hospital. That's where I was reborn. Mm. And, and that's a remarkable story in its own. It's <laughs> actually where my story begins. It's a beautiful story from this more miracles you think about those miracles that happened to me and i should have been dead yeah over and over and over and over again the question is why why not i have an answer god needed a witness mm. someone who can talk about it most of us survivors can't they have sleepless nights. And believe me, I have it too. I have sleepless nights every time I talk. Mm. But someone has to do it. And I committed myself. I devote my whole life for that purpose. And I started the foundation, Zachor Holocaust Remembrance Foundation, which means remember the Holocaust, Zachor, that pin. Is that pin, pin, yeah. Yes, I have one of those pins from you. I've given out over a million of those pins to listeners of me. Mm. Every listener gets one of these pins. And 
my hope is to give out six million to compensate for the six million silenced voices. Yes. And when you wear this pin, somebody asks you what the meaning is, tell them. It means remember the Holocaust. There was a Holocaust. Yes. It's so important. Well, it is. And, you know, Ben, as I listen to your story, um, we're, we're going very long here, but that's okay. There's one question I want to ask you about. You've, you reference miracles quite often, uh, un- rightfully. Did you grow up in an observant Jewish home uh, as a boy? Yes. How did yes. your How did your I guess we'd say your relationship with God? How did that change, if it did at all, between growing up in an yes. observant home and after the Holocaust? That's a good question, because during the Holocaust, when I saw how they're burning human beings alive, children throwing them into fiery pits, I lost my faith. Mm-hmm. Just where is God? Yeah. How how can you stand by this? What's happened? So I lost my faith during the war. But recently, after the war, I gave this a lot of thought. And I have changed my feeling. My feeling now is that God was weeping Mm -hmm. in the Holocaust. You see, he gave us all free will. A free will to do whatever we wish whether it's good or bad, he cannot interfere if we humans choose to kill or hate or even love. He can't interfere. Those choices are left up to us. Yes. Therefore, I have changed my views. Originally orthodox. When I came into the camps, I lost my faith. And after the camps, I reevaluated it. And there has to be a God. This world is not just happening by itself. And I reevaluate and I realize God gave us free will. He can't interfere. Yeah. Well, I think of, I think of, I, I, I agree. Hope. Yes, I agree with you 100%. And I think of, there's a passage in the prophet Isaiah, uh, the Jewish prophet, where um, he says, uh, speaking of the Jewish people, he says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And so as we think about that, exactly what you said, Ben, he, he wept uh, during that time. He was with the Jewish people. And uh, it's on that note, yeah. I want to just say uh, thank you, Ben. Um, in an era of increasing anti-Semitism, your survival testimony is not only poignant, it's a necessary reminder that this hatred persists. And as you know, many of my listeners are are evangelical Christians. They support Israel. But I hope that listeners, after you've you've heard Ben's account here, that this would remind all followers of Jesus that we need to make sure we are the best friends the Jewish people have and that we stand up for those God calls the apple of his eyes. Uh, Listeners, if, if any of you are interested in hearing Ben's full story, believe it or not, this was this was a condensed version 
then I highly recommend his book, Living a Life That Matters, From Nazi Nightmare to American Dream, which you can find on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other booksellers. Buy it from us. If you buy it from Amazon, I don't get a penny. So they can go directly to your to your website for the Zakor Foundation? Even yes. better. Well, Ben, thank you for your time, and, and thank you for sharing your story with us. It's a privilege to know you, and it's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Nice seeing you, Todd. You've been listening to Gesher, a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Thai, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.